0: The Starbucks Pistachio Latte will transport you to your happy place. The comforting flavor of pistachio, warm espresso and milk, all with a brown buttery topping, makes today a good day. Order ahead on the Starbucks app.
1: While it seemed like a new beginning for the band or a reconquering of the rock music world, that was all critical appraisal. Northern Lights, Southern Cross publicly and privately held very different truths. Deemed a comeback and with the expectation that the band would resume their mantle as kings of authentic rock music, the band didn't really see it like that, at least on the inside. As the praise mounted, Starting with the massive tour with Dylan in 74, through the release of their very solid album in Northern Light, Southern Cross, the members of the band were steadily declining. Fraught with infighting, or rather passive aggressiveness, the band somewhat meandered. From Robbie's perspective, he was trying to keep it all together and push forward, but the rest of the band was not interested. From the perspective of the other four guys, Robbie's iron grip on the band, and by extension, their business, was smothering. You add in drug abuse and alcohol that was present and a shared vice amongst the entire band, it didn't help matters. Though the drugs and booze didn't stop the productivity of the group like suggested by some, it's telling that the band kept busy, just not on their own group you'll notice a pattern of sorts. When times got complicated or tough, the band wouldn't tackle the issues head-on, rather put their efforts into other work, whether it was during the era of stage fright or now Northern Lights Southern Cross. Thus begins the story again, confused, frustrated, and angry. The band took their talents to the works of Neil Diamond and Eric Clapton. However, this time, it was a breaking point. They didn't know it yet, Or maybe they did, but it was only a matter of time before the glass house shattered. By 1975, Eric Clapton had spent the last five years weaving in and out of spotlight. After a rather prolific start in the 60s, it had come to a head by 69. It was no secret that Clapton wasn't happy with where he was musically. The heavy psychedelia of Cream was no longer his preference. With listening to the band returning to their roots, it had inspired him to think about what he was doing. Clapton had spent the beginning of the 70s drifting from project to project. First, it was Blind Faith, a supergroup he formed in 1969 with Steve Winwood, Eric Clapton, Ginger Baker, and Rick Gretsch. The purpose of the group was Clapton's attempt to get back to the fundamentals, with an album recorded in a tour booked. He had an opening act in Delaney and & Bonnie and Friends. Clapton spent time jamming with that group instead of his own Blind Faith. He supposedly liked the rootsy blues bass sound more. And after that tour, he left Blind Faith. Delaney Bramlett encouraged Clapton in his singing and writing, and under the Bramlett's backing group, and all-star cast of session players, including the likes of Leon Russell and Stephen Stills, Clapton recorded his first solo album during a brief hiatus in between tours. Titled Eric Clapton, Delaney Bramlett co-wrote six of the songs with Clapton and also produced it. Though Clapton was still uncertain of the path. In which he wanted to go down He also spent time recording with George Harrison On his album All Things Must Pass In the spring of 1970 And also during that period He recorded with artists like Dr. John Leon Russell, Billy Preston Ringo Starr and Dave Mason He was on to the next project before long And something later entitled Derek and the Dominoes With the intention of counteracting the supergroup mold That he found himself trapped into Clapton assembled a new band Composed of People like Bobby Whitlock as the keyboardist and vocalist, Carl Rattle as a bassist, drummer Jim Gordon, and Clapton playing the guitar. Now, it was his intention to show that he need not fill a starring role and functioned as a band member as part of an ensemble. During the period, Clapton was increasingly influenced by the band as mentioned, and music from Big Pink in particular, saying, quote, What I appreciated about the band was that they were more concerned with the songs and singing. They would have three and four part harmonies and the guitar was put into the perspective as being accompaniment. That suited me well because I had gotten so tired of the virtuosity or the pseudo virtuosity of long boring guitar solos just because they were expected. The band brought that back into perspective. The priority was the song. Now, the sessions went on to add people like Dwayne Allman of the Allman Brothers, and together the group created Layla and other assorted love songs. Layla received only lukewarm reviews upon its original release. The shaken group undertook a US tour not long after without Allman, who had to return to his own band, the Allman Brothers. With a series of projects that now didn't quite pan out to Clapton's vision, he was also plagued by romantic longings and drug and alcohol addiction. He was infatuated with George Harrison's wife, Patti Boyd, and torn by his friendship with Harrison. He withdrew from recording and touring, and isolated himself in his Surrey residence, and the Dominoes broke up. He nursed a pretty bad heroin addiction, which resulted in a lengthy career hiatus, interrupted only by performing at Harrison's Concert for Bangladesh Benefit show in New York in August of 71, which he barely made it to. By 74, Clapton started to mount a comeback, however. He started living with Boyd, kicked his heroin habit, though he was still a heavy drinker and cocaine user, and he began to produce work again. With a series of fine albums released and seeing number ones for the first time as a solo artist, he finally got what he desperately wanted, to make a record with the band. Clapton entered Shangri-La in March of 76. His label wanted an album, and Clapton tried first to secure Robbie as a producer. However, he was busy working with Neil Diamond though Clapton was still highly collaborative with the other members of the group. Now, as mentioned, the band had a fair share of issues, and apparently getting them into the studio altogether was a rare feat. Clapton later said, quote, Some of the jams were amazing because they hadn't played together in ages. There were hundreds of guitars, and on my birthday party, it was the first time the entire band played together in a long time. And with the album underway, it begins with a Danko manual number called Beautiful Thing." The song has a long history, originating in 1966. Richard worked on the song as they were making their transition from the Hawks to the band, and an unfinished version recorded during the demoing of that album was later released. Take a listen. I told you once enough. The song wasn't finished, but Manuel brought it back almost a decade later for Clapton, who was struggling to write his own material. Danko helped him finish it, and it opened up the eventual Clapton album. The song features a strong piano melody, something that Richard specialized in and harkened back to his strong works with We Can Talk or Whispering Pines. The rest of the musical arrangement is laid back and breathes, something Richard is also a master of. With the piano rhythm you have an organ that adds a haunting church-like flavor to it and this is paired with two guitars one slide further adding to the laid-back vibes and another clean rather bright single coil sound most likely from a stratocaster while no doubt you can hear where richard's vocal may have gone instead you have clapton who is no slouch either as writer stephen lewis notes clapton's whiskey and cigarette voice is the proper fit for a song that precariously balances on hopelessness and loneliness
0: I've told you once, so now you should know the reason that I'm come
1: Now in the chorus, we switch to a rather full female choir to aid the organ in that church gospel-like flavor.
0: You see my way. A thing, just my way.
1: Now without proper credits, we can assume at least that Richard and Rick play on the track, but... Levon and Garth's work is a little harder to distinguish. It's more likely that Levon maybe is drumming, but it's also very likely that it's Garth's organ work as well, but we can't be certain. It's also somewhat plausible that Robbie may have been on the other guitar, at least Rolling Stone critic David Marsh believed so in his 1976 review. The next track of note on the album, that the band supported on is sign language. Shangri-La was the band's hangout, but Dylan hung out there quite a bit too, and he contributed to the sessions. As was later remembered, quote, Dylan dropped by and was just hanging out, living in a tent at the bottom of the garden. He would sneak into the studio to see what was going on. Sign language was his offering but it wasn't the only thing that Dylan offered. Apparently had an unrecorded version of Seven Days, which Clapton turned down. But no matter, Ron Wood of the Stones, who was also hanging out, ended up putting that on his solo record later. Now, more on sign language, The song was a result of sessions from Dylan's album, Desire. It seemed to come from the end of a rather prolific session period of writing in 1975. Though it's a rather ordinary song following a rather normal chord progression, the melody isn't particularly strong and the lyrics seem kind of bland, a smattering of different things. However, there are some interesting things here, like a reference to Link Ray, the man that pioneered rock music with the line, Link Ray was playing on a jukebox. I was paying for the words I was saying, so misunderstood, he didn't do me no good. Moreover, what saves the song really is the musicality of it. Robbie Robertson occupies a lead guitar slot, and his playing is very distinguished here, his rapid tremolo bends and pinched harmonics. Take a listen. <laughs> layering also works well here. The acoustic guitars, the rich dobro sound, it all works together beautifully. The vocal is also shared, Dylan and Clapton singing as one. It's rather clunky and neither seem confident, but you are left with a rather interesting song and collaboration nonetheless. Clapton said that Dylan liked to change a lot between takes, something that he wasn't used to, but given the nature of the collaboration, he decided to get to Dylan's level and just mellow out. Next is Clapton's take on Alfred Field's blues heavy hitter, County Jail Blues. Released originally in 41, this was a rather safe spot for Clapton. Musically, it's straightforward, but Clapton & Co. update it and give it more of a groovy feel. Richard Manuel pounds the keys, rhythmic and strong, but never overcomplicated or overpowering. This is paired with a great Billy Preston on organ and multi-track guitars, both straight up. Chords and slide also aid. Take a listen we Clapton caps the performance off with a very laid-back vocal. It's blues, nothing special needed there. The side is capped off with All Our Past Lives, which is a co-write between Clapton and Rick Danko. (laughs) The vocal trade-off between the two is a great little piece of history here. They are joined on the chorus by several other people, including the now-familiar women's choir that's throughout the album. Clapton remembers that Danko's particular style when recording vocals was something that he wasn't used to. He said that Danko would change the way he sung the song differently on every take, making it rather difficult but also amusing. Overall, the first side is dominated by members of the band, though there are other contributions on the album, including Rick Danko's brother Terry Danko, well-regarded session artist Jesse Ed Davis on guitar, Mick Jagger's brother Chris on vocals, Carl Rattle on bass, and blues guitarist George Terry. Additionally, it was during these sessions that Richard Manuel and Eric Clapton became closer. Most likely, their substance abuse issues bonded them. As Clapton later remembered, quote, Richard, Manuel, and I were like blood brothers. Every night when the session ended, we'd be the only ones left standing. We'd just play all fucking night. The album was released in August of 1976, entitled No Reason to Cry. It became one of his best international successes of the 70s, reaching the top 30 in seven national music album charts, hitting the top 10 in the United Kingdom, peaking at eight, and in the Netherlands, where it topped out at nine. The album was certified platinum in the UK, in Norway and the United States. The album charted 13th and 15th respectively. However, on the critical side, it was met with lukewarm reactions. Critic William Ruhlman writes, quote, The most memorable music on the album occurs when Clapton is collaborating with members of the band and other guests. Before using the Dagger line, quote, A good purchase for fans of Bob Dylan and the band, but not necessarily for those of Eric Clapton. And Rolling Stone critic David Marsh was quite harsh when saying, Clapton has sacrificed much of his credibility in his move west. Clapton is playing someone else's idiom. The results are more melange than masterpiece. As previously mentioned, Clapton had wanted Robbie to produce his album, but he was busy with Neil Diamond. Diamond had been an idol to Robertson, and Neil had cut his teeth as a successful songwriter in the famed Tin Pan Alley, something Robbie desired. Diamond also happened to be a neighbor of Robbie's in Malibu, and the two met and hit it off. Robbie later said, quote, He still had the classic good looks. That led to some people to refer to him as the Jewish Elvis. His kind and open manner made my family take to him right away. Though according to Robertson he kept on blowing off Diamond's record, it wasn't sure if he was the right fit, and Diamond's management took this as a negotiation tactic, coming back with bigger offers to produce the album. Finally, after a meeting in which they bonded over their stories of being young kids visiting the Brill Building and the legacy of the Tin Pan Alley, Robbie agreed to produce the record. With Robertson eager to produce more and their new state-of-the-art facilities at Shangri-La, Robbie and Diamond began to work on material there in 75. The eventual album was a stark departure for Diamond. In 72, Diamond had took a break for a number of years, including no performing. He had started to mount a comeback in 74 with his album Serenade, which was deemed critically as overblown, self-important, and banal. Diamond was looking to shake it up, and Robertson was the man to do it. Robbie employed a very different production style and brought more diversity to the arrangements and compositions. According to Robbie, quote, We had a blast making the record, which was called Beautiful Noise. The theme centered around New York City and a young man learning the hard way about the trials and tribulations of making it in the music business during the mid-60s. The album began with the namesake, Beautiful Noise, and it's a rather bizarre song. It's big, it's bombastic, and highly produced. From the very first second, you know what the record is going for, what types of songs and production you'll be listening to for the next 45 plus minutes. There's nothing overly endearing or interesting about it, and it's only really saved in part by Garth Hudson's organ work. Take a listen.
0: (laughs) ¶¶
1: Song is followed by another tune called Stargazer, which follows the same formula. Both songs are rather showy, and writer Michael Little notes, Biz Perky manufactured for mass consumption. Every last horn in New Orleans can't save it. Not exactly thrilling commentary. Robertson is trying to bring the authentic flavors of the band in the form of R&B and gospel and New Orleans jazz and upping the ante, bringing more saturation. What makes it work for the band is its rather restrained feel and more earthy production. Next... The ballad Lady O, which had Robertson's fingerprints all over it. The guitar is a classic Robertson tone, something you'd find with It Makes No Difference. The song works better as it's more restrained, and the organ work is great, which is either from someone like Garth or band friend Dr. John or one of the many other players on the record. But that is followed with Don't Think, Feel which is really tough to get through. It has a false Caribbean feel, almost kind of sounds like a party with flutes and black women's choir to boot. However, the first side of the record is saved with Surviving the Life. It's equally as upbeat as the other tracks, but doesn't feel as contrived. Hudson Soar is on organ here, the lead instrument on the track. Take a listen. And though the lyrics leave a lot to be desired, not everything has to be deep or overly philosophical, but the thesis of the song is in the lyric You're alive, you might as well be glad. Which is sort of laughable. You've got
0: to get through anyway.
1: The second side of the record doesn't really get any more consistent. Ballads like If You Know What I Mean and Home is a Wounded Heart are syrupy and a tad overproduced and don't come across as authentic. Tunes like Street Life and Jungle Time nowadays seem kind of dated and probably were even dated when they were released. The challenge with a lot of these songs are they are interesting and parts here and there are really good. Whether it's lyrics from Signs or somewhat interesting instrumentation on Street Life. The record ends with the only co-write on the record, a collaboration between Robertson and Diamond entitled Dry Your Eyes. And according to Robbie, quote, Dry Your Eyes was about how people felt after the assassination of Martin Luther King. Dry your
0: eyes,
1: take your song out It's
0: a newborn afternoon And if you can't recall the singer You can still recall the tune Dry
1: Now, I'm not sure if the song necessarily hits the mark. Again, a running theme is it's overdone, but it's the strongest on the album. It fits a bit better with other diamond outings, and the chorus is quite memorable, and the arrangement and instrumentation is more breathy, not as gaudy and dense. The ability to hear each instrument and how it works together to uplift the chorus works decently well here, too. Upon completion of the album, Robbie remembers, quote, as a whole, the songs on the album had a cinematic quality, and I could even imagine it as a Broadway musical. The album was released in June of 76 with a rather colorful cover featuring beautiful noise, the album's title, and big garish letters with a rather large subtitle stating, produced by Robbie Robertson. Now, Robbie insists that it was a surprise to him When the album came out, Neil put my producing credit on the front cover as part of the artwork, something that I had never seen before. I told him it really wasn't necessary, but he insisted. The album produced three singles, If You Know What I Mean, Don't Think Feel, and the title track Beautiful Noise. If You Know What I Mean was number one on the Billboard's Easy Listening charts, Don't Think Feel reached number 42 in the U.S., and Beautiful Noise reached 13th in the U.K. single charts. The album was also deemed a comeback and helped Diamond relaunch his touring career and led to more productivity. Critics were less than kind, though. Fame critic Robert Christgau went on to proclaim, quote, "This is a monstrous record." It takes a special kind of chutzpah to create a monster. And while at first it seemed like maybe a positive assessment, he goes on to describe the music as, quote, pop program music, not a ringing endorsement. And writer Michael Little suggests, quote, Beautiful Noise reveals the mature diamond to be a caricature of a parody of satire with all the authentic soul of an organ grinder's monkey. Beautiful Noise is a terrible album, for though he has become a man who purveys but the purest schmaltz and treacle. But by the summer of 1976, the band was back together and things started to change. The band had spent their fair share of time in the studio over the last year, and it was time to tour their newest album, Northern Lights, Southern Cross. Many of the uncertainties that had plagued the group for the last five years were creeping up yet again. Sure, the shows were fine, plenty of appreciation from fans and musicians alike. Dolly Parton, in particular, commented on the band's performance after an especially gruelingly hot Performance at Santa Monica County Bowl. However, the attitude wasn't great and Richard didn't seem to be enjoying himself. His partner Jane had left him numerous times, and after failed attempts at trying to help him with his various battles, his current girlfriend was Kathy Smith, a Canadian who later became famous for injecting the original Saturday Night Live cast member John Belushi with a fatal dose of heroin and cocaine in 1982. Now, she had taken up with Levon's girlfriend at the time and tried to help Manuel, but as you can surmise, it didn't go well. Smith herself struggled with drugs. And towards the end of the summer, the band was booked to play a festival, Steiner Ranch, near Austin, Texas. The roads were blocked, and the only way in and out of the festival grounds was by boat. They had speedboats ripping up and down the river, carrying performers, and the boat bringing the band was flying over the water when Richard decided he wanted to move up to the front. But as he stood up, the group hit a wave and the boat pounded down hard and threw Richard backwards, snapping his neck badly. And as Helm claimed, quote, Robbie got superstitious when it happened. Much like when Robbie came down with a weird case of stage fright before the band's first performance at the Winterland, these cases called for an off the cuff solution. The band brought in Tibetan monks to remedy Richard. As Robbie remembers, I was expecting men in robes with shaved heads, but these guys looked more like FBI agents, dressed in dark suits with big clunky shoes. They were direct, almost rude, as if they were on some kind of mission. Now, the guys were concerned, but were assured Richard would be fine, and after an hour of chanting and God knows what else, Richard was healed. His neck no longer hurt, and he could move more without pain. Richard later explained, Quote, they put both their hands over me and moved them into different areas of my body. They hummed different notes like they were searching for a sound. The humming got louder. My eyes started to water. Finally, it got quieter and softer and softer until they stopped. They took my head into their hands and moved it around and around, and it didn't hurt. And while the band were concerned about Richard and his neck, there was also worry about the drug intake. All the guys were getting a little too deep. And as Robbie states, we were all skating on thin ice in one way or another. The drug use and the general lifestyle was a problem but the other was the machine that was being built around the band. We know that the band at one point resisted outsider influence, whether it was from the label or their management. However, as the 1970s lurched forward, the band surrounded itself with more lawyers, more management, and more fingers in the pot. And as Levon remembers, he was concerned about the management's plans around investment. Quote, We had a big chunk of money coming to us around then, representing publishing money and royalties. Suddenly, we had been goosed into a much higher income tax bracket. Our management wanted to invest in condominium development in Colorado Springs and some weird tax shelters involving oil and natural gas exploration, potentially lucrative investments that also happened to be extremely risky. I got disgusted and began to disengage. I hated to do it, but the things in the band had passed beyond my control, and I had to get out of there. And as you can see, it became less and less about a band of brothers. It was no longer about making music. It was about protecting the commercial and monetary interests of the band's brand, which honestly wasn't really anything special to begin with. Levon also happened to be right about his concerns about shoddy investment. He later mused, When they told us some years later that they needed to buy 700 replacement refrigerators, the condo investment didn't look so hot anymore. When the oil and gas shelters collapsed in the 1980s, a lot of famous people lost a lot of money and it made the papers as a financial scandal, but they were back on tour, and it was a rocky road. The unevenness was noted by critics. The Los Angeles Times noted, quote, "The band reexerted its role as America's premier rock band, but it needs to deal more forcefully with the issue of its past versus its presence." And the New York Times stated the band devoted the last half of its set to more superficial numbers from its more recent albums the performance was musically impeccable but it lacked the grand almost desperate intensity of the first part of the show and by the time the band made their way to nashville in september the audience just didn't respond no applause and they left the stage without an encore according to john marlowe a writer who was present at the show Robbie, upon walking off the stage, said, You know, it's nights like this that sometimes makes me wonder what the hell I'm doing out here on the damn road in a rock and roll band. And Rick had also had enough, and during the tour he had thought about and signed to deal with Arista Records, And Levon remembers, quote, I knew he had been unhappy with things for a long time, and I think he had seen the end coming and wanted to get on with his career. And what made this even more of a pointed note is Danko had signed the deal with Arista rather than going with Warner Brothers, who was offering the band a $6 million contract to record an album a year. Not long after, Levon took Danko's cue and was working with Henry Glover and our company and secured himself a record deal with ABC, and the band began to drift. Now, with Robbie, he later said, "'Even before Richard's accident, "'I had started to contemplate the idea "'that we might need to get off the road "'before something really bad happens.'" And Robbie was maybe right. Maybe it was fear about another accident being the last accident, someone dying, Or maybe he would become more superstitious, as noted. Robbie was also smart and shrewd when it came to business. The band wasn't performing well on the road, members began to drift and sign their own deals, so Robertson plotted his next career opportunity. He was later quoted as saying, I was no angel during that period, but to put it rather bluntly, I was just more scared than they were. I didn't have the balls to try everything that they were willing to try. It was almost as if it had become this experiment, how close to the edge of the cliff you could drive without falling off. Robbie was isolated in a lot of ways from the rest of the band. They turned their backs on him for various reasons, as mentioned, and had started doing their own projects with more vigor. Robbie also began to see that the control he once had over the members may have been slipping and it was time to blow it up. The band collected themselves at their clubhouse in Shangala for a meeting in which Robbie called. He suggested a final concert at the Winterland, where it all began for the group. A celebration and conclusion to this part of their journey, it was rather abrupt and caught folks off guard. They had been doing this for 16 years. It was a way of life for them. According to Robertson, nobody was really opposed in the first meeting. Garth, who always had beaten to his own drum, was seeing the drugs and alcohol creep in and affect the rest of the band, and when he suggested it was maybe time to take a step back, the others respect his perspective. Richard, who had his moments of doubt and had wanted to retire multiple times, was worn down from his neck injury, and Rick was somewhere in the middle of the road. However, Levon wasn't thrilled. He famously said, I'm not in it for my health, before adding, I'm a musician and I want to live the way I do. It's a crying shame to take this band from productivity to retirement because of your superstitiousness, or for the sake of a final payday. And however strong Levon's opinion was, it wasn't heralded and before long the press got wind of the band calling it quits. Robertson began an aggressive press tour saying that the band was done touring, and collectively they all agreed, pining to the Toronto Star, quote, We feel pretty good about our decision to stop touring. However, with this new plan set in stone, there wasn't any reason for the guys to even try to make it work anymore. If the solo plans set by Danko and Helm weren't a priority, they were now. They were tired of someone trying to make their decisions for them, and Danko later stated about the end of touring with the band, quote, it wasn't me who said I was going to stop playing. And other folks remember the displeasure of the band around this new plan. Howard Johnson, who had played with the group before, said that Levon didn't hold back his displeasure about Robertson and the band's management at railroading what they had built for almost two decades. It was a difficult situation to control. While the rest of the band may not have wanted to split, or hiatus or disbandment. Signing deals to do solo albums and getting involved in other projects reinforced the idea that maybe the band was actually done, at least for the foreseeable future. Additionally, The Last Waltz, as it grew, became more showy, something that didn't really sit right with the other guys. Robertson was trying to make it a spectacle. The others were never show-offs or believed themselves to be so self-important. They had given up and given in to Robbie's plan. Maybe they didn't feel like it was worth the fight anymore. They didn't care. And before long, the last waltz was booked, the press began to roll, and the band set out on a final few months of playing and promotion for the great show. First, they traveled to New York to perform on the second season of Saturday Night Live. Canadian Lorne Michaels, who had created the program in 1975 with NBC, who employed him. He started in Toronto on the CBC before moving to Los Angeles to write for Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In and the beautiful Phyllis Diller Show, as well as the Hart and Lorne Terrific Hour, a Canadian comedy series which he had starred in. The television network was looking for a weekend program. Fame talk show host Johnny Carson could take weekends off, Thus, Michael created the originally titled Saturday Night, a variety show featuring high concept comedy sketches, political satire, and music performances that would attract a younger demographic. SNL assembled a team of eventual comedy heavy hitters like Dan Aykroyd, John Belushi, Chevy Chase, Jane Curtin, Garrett Morris, Lorraine Newman, Gilda Radner, and... George Co. Debuting on October 11th, 1975, the show was quickly developing a cult following and then eventually became a mainstream hit. And it was the perfect spotlight for the band. Michaels allegedly asked the band to host the show, but they eventually settled upon taking a more traditional mantle as a musical guest and Michaels gave the band the chance to play four songs as opposed to the usual two. Actor Buck Henry was brought in to host, and the group was selected to perform on October 30th, 1976, the final show before the U.S. presidential election. As is Saturday Night Live's custom, the band spent a few days leading up to the show at the Rockefeller Center to prepare for their performance. Robertson recalls spending time with John Belushi, quote, I don't think John knew how to turn off his wit, quickness, and his impersonations. It was truly mind-boggling. He also remembers a night prior to the show in which Belushi was hanging out with the guys and was so determined to acquire cocaine, eventually borrowing money from Robertson to do so. The day of the show, the band was nervous. They hadn't done much television and Richard was particularly jittery. According to sources, he was snorting cocaine only for a doctor to administer a shot to reverse the effect so he could play. My special guests this evening have been on the road as a touring band for over 16 years. This Thanksgiving, they will be doing their last live performance, and we are very honored to have them here tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, the band. The band opened with Life is a Carnival, and then into the night, they drove Old Dixie down, accompanied by the Saturday Night Live Band. And for their second set they played stage fright once again augmented by the Saturday Night Live horn section. Finally to close the show in one of the defining moments the band played Georgia on my mind in tribute to their new friend Jimmy Carter who had beat out Gerald Ford the following week for the presidency. Richard Emanuel really puts his stamp on the performance. Georgia?
0: Georgia The whole day through There's this old sweet song That keeps you Georgia on my mind
1: Now, the Saturday Night Live performance would be the last before the band found themselves in the whirlwind that was the last waltz. They were about to enter rehearsals for the big evening, Thanksgiving dinner and all. It was the last big stretch, a massive job of learning 20 new songs in two weeks at their clubhouse, Shangri-La, to back their guests on the night as well as lay down the final tracks for their last studio album for Capitol. The band had now run the tank dry and they had to limp to the finish only on fumes. Thank you, everybody, for listening to the band uh, History. Uh, We really hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, This was a fun one. Originally, all of this content was going to be in the Last Waltz episode, which I've been talking about for the last two months. Uh, It's still going to probably be a double episode, but we had written all this material and realized that there was so much before we even got to hop into Last Waltz that it really didn't make sense for it to be in the Last Waltz episode. Rather, there was enough content. Uh, 12 pages or so to make its own episode. As you know from previous episodes like this, I really enjoy these in-betweener ones, especially when the band is working on different things, whether this time it was Eric Clapton or Neil Diamond. The Neil Diamond one was a little bit of a struggle to get through. I think... It, the album's not very good. Uh, Robbie tries his best in part, but Neil Diamond is such a character that I think it was difficult for him. But now, hopefully, you can see why somebody like Neil Diamond was in The Last Waltz. You know, Robbie does have that connection with him as I uh, explored in the episode. But... Uh, This episode was really fun to do. We're working on the last Waltz episode. We really hope that that will be out soon as well, but we really want to nail it before we continue on through the 80s and the 90s with the band. Uh, I get that question sometimes. Yes, we will do the entire history of the band all the way up until the final uh, disbandment in 1999. I'd like to take this time right now, though, to thank some of my awesome patrons. If you're not familiar, we have a Patreon, which... You can go and help contribute to make the show. Uh, there's several different tiers that you can pick from, and you get early access to the episodes. You get additional content. You get a lot of interesting writings, like our new series, Deep Cuts. There's a lot of awesome stuff. Uh, we're working on merch right now, some cool things that they'll get access to first. But there's a few that I want to thank. Um, you know who you are, but Steven. Danielle, Kaylee, Anne, Kate, there's so many more of you. The Patreon's growing really big. Uh, There's a lot of great content there. We're kind of building a little small community there. So if you're interested in checking out our Patreon, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash thebandpodcast. I'll also have some details in the description of the episodes. Uh, But if you're just interested in following us online, uh, you can find us everywhere at The Band Podcast. We are on Instagram, which we put a lot of great... Uh, content out there written content with pictures twitter has been really popping off lately definitely go ahead and follow us on twitter for some great discussion you can find us on facebook and we also have a facebook group which is growing as well a cool community there so we're all over so make sure you come and follow us drop me a comment if you like the episode if you'd like to see us talk about something else Uh, i'm very willing to engage with everybody online So we really hope you like this episode, and we'll catch you on the flip side.
0: Progressive presents Adjusting to the Suburbs.